Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host Viz from Walking Dead Now and it is my honor tonight to welcome three horror icons, Greg Nicotero, Tom Savini, and Anthony Timpone. Guys, welcome and thank you so much for being here with us tonight, uh, not only to talk about the Walking Dead finale, but to talk about your remarkable careers in the horror genre. Uh, how, first of all, how are you guys doing tonight? Peachy. Greg, peachy. how are you feeling? <laughs> I'm double peachy because I'm double peachy. You look tired, man. You do look tired. Uh, Tony? I, I can't believe you have the time to even be here. I can't believe you have the time to even be here. All I know is that when I got the alert on my phone, I got the alert on my phone, I was like, right, because I have a 4 a.m. call for Peachy. Oh, man. Tony, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm doing great as well. Oh, well, I, before we get started, I want you guys to know that I did the math, and between the three of you combined, we oh, have a hundred and ten over a hundred and ten years worth of horror, professional horror entertainment experience on the screen right now, uh, amongst all three of you guys. Uh, that is just flat out amazing to me. And Greg, let's just get started. We'll start with you. Uh, first off, congratulations on directing such an amazing uh, finale to The Walking Dead that you brought to us. How far in advance uh, did you know exactly how you wanted to end the Whisperer War? Oh, well, listen, you know, I mean, the writers had writers had very crafted a very storyline in a very storyline in a very unique scenario, and I think I was very curious. I was very curious as the season progressed, as the season progressed, but how we were going to wrap it up, how we were going to get rid of thousands of walkers. You know, it's always one of those things. It's always one of those things where the the premiere season finale, mid season finale, and the mid season premiere and the finale, they're all because they all have a little bit more. They all have a more of a punch to them. They want to feel to them. They want to feel scale and epic and scale and scope and scope. Those episodes. Those episodes a lot more challenging, a lot more challenging. Certain storylines and certain storylines, storylines, new storylines. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of moving parts. It's like taking an ocean liner, taking an ocean liner in blindfolded. But I've done a lot of them, and but I've done a lot of them, and group of actors and crew of actors and crew around. It's easier. It's just amazing here. The level of gore in regard um, to the zombie feast that we saw in this past episode has to be the most that we've seen in any single episode of The Walking Dead. Uh, what made you decide I, that... I, th I, um, you know, one of the things that's really important to me is, important to me you know, we had this is, great threat, you know, we had this great whisper, threat, but you gotta just remember that the zombies are still deadly lethal creatures and just because you can walk among them doesn't necessarily mean that you're safe so i really loved being able to like we made i think five different tear apart bodies and spent like half of an afternoon just having zombie extras rip bodies apart with from different camera angles because i love the idea that it was like Dropping a, a piece of meat into a piranha fish tank and just, and then there was nothing. <laughs> so uh, that was a lot of fun. I just liked doing 
doing the gore stuff. You know? How? Uh, what made you decide that this is going to be the episode that of throughout ten years that we are going to have the biggest zombie feast in a single episode of The Walking Dead? What made you decide this is it? This it's time to go to this level now. Well, you know, we've we've had great moments in the past, but. You know, as soon as the characters are free to walk amongst the zombies, then it sort of takes the threat away a little bit. So you gotta, you gotta kind of, you know, poke the bear with the stick a little bit. And I ended up doing in that in that sequence, which, you know, it was really well written, and I I loved the idea that you know when we scouted the locations, we found that that sort of room where they opened the door. I kept referring to it it's like the airlock the zombie airlock they open the door and all the zombies come in and then they just sort of <laughs> drift out and drift out into space with all the other walkers and i really loved you know it was clearly it was written with an intent to keep the shots isolated by having you know when you see the shots of of nadia you know the zombie faces are so close around her that it's all you can see is dead, rotting flesh, and then her face. And she's trying to maintain, you know, her. Uh, she's trying to stay cool and not lose her, uh, lose her shit in the middle of the scene, in the middle of that moment. So it was really, it was really fun and definitely a different way to handle that device that we've used a lot in the show. You know. Excellent. Now, Tom, you saw the episode last night. Okay. Yeah. Now you met, you made a little joke just before the show started how you watch, you know, by peeking because you're afraid of the blood and guts. What did you think about the. <laughs> me. Me. <laughs> what did you think about the level of gore uh, that Greg put on display for us last night? Well, it's huge. I mean, the guy's pulling knives out of his eyeballs. <laughs> you know, I mean, that. Uh, to, to me, a couple of seasons ago. Uh, Greg did an episode, uh, directed an episode where the characters were in front of a trough and they were smacking them on the back of the head with a baseball bat and cutting their throats. I called Greg right after that. God damn it. You're going to give me nightmares. You know, that's the most brutal thing, you know, I've ever seen. You know? So oh, yeah. it's, it's not about that. Well, well just, what? You, just to let you know, you Greg. You forgot about that. Five uh, years, five yeah, that was a long time ago. Oh. That was the premiere of season five. And uh, okay. I've mentioned this before many times. To date, my favorite episode of The Walking Dead. Uh, the Terminus people. Now, Tony, uh, you saw last night's epi episode. What is your feelings on the level of blood, guts, zombie feast, gore that we got to see yesterday? Uh, it was a, a record setter. It was the Guinness Book of Records in terms of zombies on screen, zombie mayhem. Um, it, it was a, a, you know, a zombie fan wet dream to the ultimate extreme. It, it was just amazing. Uh, but there was also great human drama. And uh, Greg brilliant, brilliantly tied up so many loose ends from this past season in such a satisfying way. I, I was really thrilled with the episode. There was you know, no... Uh, disappointment at all it just blew me away it was an amazing episode on all levels absolutely greg i called i called tony and john last night after i saw the episode yep. and i asked you know i was expecting because because beforehand he was talking about it was a, the a very romero-esque episode and he explained to me it's because of the gore mm -hmm. you know 
Like, I, you know, I didn't see anything plot-wise, you know, no. but it's because, because of the gore. And know? I got to tell it you guys, perfect sense to me, yeah. I was watching that episode with my son. It's a tradition. I watch all The Walking Dead with my with my second born, my, my middle kid, my son. And uh, as we're watching it, he hates watching TV with me because I'm like, I'm smacking him on the shoulder. I'm like, you know what this is, reminds me of? And I'm like, it's like Dawn of the Dead. He's like, what's that? I'm like... God uh, damn, how could you be my son? I, I got to so catch them up. but Well, the blood the blood was a lot better in The Walking Dead <laughs> than that pasty strawberry colored. It looked great in the bottle, but boy, it didn't photograph well. You know what? We're going to get to that in a second, Tom. We're, we're okay, going to get great. to that. Now, Greg, at the end of episode 15, we see Alden and Aaron surrounded by whisperers. Aaron is being held at gunpoint, okay? And uh, for me and a lot of other fans, we took the expression on Aaron's face. Uh, it to mean that he knew who was holding him at gunpoint. Now, at, this, at the beginning of this episode that we saw last night, that issue is never really addressed besides the whole masked ninja person showing up with Maggie. How they got out of that jam, we never got to see. Now, were those scenes filmed but due to timing purposes never made it to the screen no i think you know there are certain liberties that you can take when you're when you're a filmmaker in regards to story and i know one of the things that they that the writers did this season was they were like you don't need to see every single moment happen on camera i mean if you remember episode uh we switched the air order so the episode where they they burn down Hilltop. Yeah. Uh, the end of the beginning, at uh, uh, the end of the beginning of the attack, they're trapped outside between the wall and the fire. Yeah. And then you cut to the next episode, and now they're miraculously inside the walls, and they're trying to keep the walkers from getting in. And you know, you you could sit there and start talking about like, well, there's a little bit of a logic leap, and how do they get from here to here? But the truth of the matter is, it's not necessarily really that critical to see every single moment over and over again. I agree. And I, I think in that moment when you come upon you come upon uh, the guys fighting, your 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 inclination is going to be that they somehow got into a scuffle and started fighting off the whispers, and that's when the masked man showed up. Gotcha, gotcha. And I totally agree uh, that leaving some parts to the viewer's imagination is a great way to go. Now, the only rumblings, uh, I get messages from a lot of Walking Dead fans every day. The only rumble, uh, they all loved the episode, uh, was in regards to Beta's death. Uh, they felt that it came too soon in the episode. Um, they wanted, I don't know if they wanted, they didn't rumbling is not even the right word they just felt like it came too soon what do you really? have to say to that i don't agree with uh, it but what do you have I to say that i would have never thought of it any other way because there are certain elements that you have to address in terms of wrapping up the season and beta's death was sort of the first trigger to begin the sequence of events that wraps up the entire episode once Beta is gone, then they can deal with the 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 horde, and then we still have to wrap up uh, 
getting everybody back together, and then Eugene's story that wraps that, that gets us into the Commonwealth stuff. So I, I don't think that it came too early at all. Oh, neither do I. There, so of other elements that needed to fall into place. You couldn't get rid of the horde without getting rid of Beta. Gotcha. So Beta had to go before they could dispatch the horde. And that's why, you know, that's why when they realize, when Daryl and the group realizes that the, the, the herd is turning back to the hospital towards the tower, all of a sudden Daryl says, we got to go back in and we got to start killing the whispers one by one. That's why they went back in, because they knew that the whispers were the ones that were controlling the herd along with Beta. Gotcha. And you know, the whole thing about Beta's death was is that, you know, Daryl sort of sweeps in at the last moment and saves Negan uh, by killing Beta. Gotcha. And that was the intent of that moment. So it's a story structure thing. These same oh. people, these same people were pissed when Janet Lee died in Psycho. <laughs> well, she did die. She did die too soon. <laughs> But that's a ploy. That's a common, you know. I mean, one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. Uh, but, you know, the the timing of it now, looking back on it, was perfect. Uh, you know, I guess history is the best judge of things like that. Tony, how'd you feel uh, about the timing of Beta's death? Oh, I thought it was perfect. Um, it, I couldn't see it in any other place in the, in the show. It was in what? It was 10 minutes before the show ended? It was... It was it was pretty much uh, near the conclusion, and and it was just such a great moment. I think you needed a little extra. You needed some more time to to decompress after that uh, amazing kill shot of uh, um, you know Beta getting the two daggers in the eyes. It was incredible. I just just to me it was just perfect. I I, I wouldn't change a thing in that. Yeah, I love that. I love that sequence. Now, Tom, being in this business for as long as you have. Um, are you surprised at the level of blood, guts, and gore that is being allowed not only on cable TV, but on regular network channels as well these days? No, I'm not surprised because they have to do it. You're, you, the, the audience expects it. Even big budget movies are, have so much gore in them. They have to satisfy the audience. They feel, uh, they feel deprived if they don't get it, you know, uh, it's like a common, a common uh, 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 staple uh, in movies now. Well, movies like that, you know. Uh, but I... so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's been growing and growing and getting more and more and more, and now it's whoa, you know. Uh, I... Walking Dead is the pinnacle. Yeah, I mean, but to me, it's still surprising that it's not just cable. AMC is a cable channel, uh, you know, so they do have a little bit more leeway. But I've seen shows like Hannibal, that's on NBC, and the level of oh, gore yeah, yeah. that is displayed on that show uh, just they blew like me they away. They have to do it. They have to do it. Have you watched any of the uh, Raised by Wolves uh, show? No. No, I haven't. Okay. I, had, I binge-watched 10 episodes, and boy, you've never seen anything like that. I mean, it's gore, but it's not zombies. It's not people shooting or mutilating each other it's on a whole different visceral alien level aliens from outer space level it's uh, yeah it's pretty spectacular it hooked me the first five minutes i had to, i you know, i was up on i was up all night watching 
10 episodes. You know? Wow. <laughs> now, have you seen it, Tony? Greg, have you seen no, it? No, no, uh, it's on my queue, though. Yeah. It's H- I had to, actually, the HBO uh, teased the first episode, and I had to get HBO Max to continue watching it, <laughs> and I did, you know. Yeah. Tony, how do you feel about the level of, I mean, are you on the same boat with Tom here? It doesn't surprise you that this is on cable and regular network TV as well? Um, well, I'm a little, I was a little surprised at first, like, like you mentioned Hannibal, I was shocked at the stuff they were getting away with, uh, especially since I had been, hadn't watched network TV in years before Hannibal. Um, but yeah, they have to keep up with the Joneses, you know, American mm-hmm. horror story, Walking dead. Good you know, way the to put it. Yeah. Open now. yeah. The floodgates are open and, um, it's a matter of, you know, uh, upping up, upping the ante and topping what's come before. The audience won't settle for less, really. Yeah. And we trained them that way. I mean, uh, that's what the Friday the 13th movies were. People were going to see that to see how, uh, how the teenagers are going to be killed. And it was always different, you know, always special. It was like, uh, you know, the, uh, an art exhibit in a way to see how the teenagers are going to die. So then you had to keep up and you had to keep uh, outdoing what you did before, you know? So it, it, like, like Tony said, keeping up with the Joneses, but exponentially, you know, going higher, you know? Gotcha. Now, you know, this brings me to a question, Greg, uh, Tom mentioned earlier, the, the season five premiere terminus, uh, my favorite episode of the walking dead today. Uh, I read an article where I forget which actor I believe turned to you and said, "This, there's no way AMC is going to air this." Uh, and I believe I forgot what your response. I don't. I, I believe it was you. Uh, and somebody approached you, and they're like, "There's no way this is getting aired." Uh, did you have doubts, like with season five premiere, uh, how much if you were going to get any pushback? Say, "No, this is not going to happen." Yeah, one. We actually had one little bit of pushback on one of the slit throats. I think it was the first one. Because, you know, the interesting things about the way that we do these, and Tom can Tom can certainly attest to this because he probably practically invented the slit throat gag, was, you know, there was a time when you'd put a tube and then you'd cover the tube with a prosthetic and you'd have to paint it and blend it all off. And then the actor would bring the knife up and you would pump the blood. Well, now with the advent of visual effects and the way the TV has to shoot, you got to be fast. Uh, I sort of came up with this, this thing I called a blood choker. And it was basically a round tube like this uh, that went around your neck with little perforated holes in it. And the blood was being fed up from the back. So when we were ready to cut the throats, we just put the choker on right on the outside of the actor's skin, plugged it in the back and just hit the button. So we had instantaneous blood flow. And uh, it was so graphic looking. And real. That, of course, the VFX guys, all they would do is they'd go in and they'd erase the tube. So it looked like blood was fountaining out of the, the actor's neck. So um, when we submitted it for the ratings, they had wanted us to trim like 23 or 24 frames out of one of the one of the gags because they just thought that it was too much, maybe 30 frames, which is about one a second. little over a second. Yeah. So 
I think we, I think I ended up convincing them to cut out like 18 frames. Like a half a second of score is going to make a difference. I know. But, yeah. You know, that, I, I remember developing that scene with Scott Gimple because the baseball bat in the trough thing and using the, using the trough to tell the story uh, and the suspense. And, you know, I mean, that was before. Negan was even ever introduced. Negan wasn't going to be introduced for two seasons, but we had a guy behind Glenn's head with a baseball bat, and everybody thought that they that they you know I think we even put it in the Comic Con trailer, and everybody went, "Oh, Glenn's going to get." And uh, but uh, you know that I was really proud of that scene because that was something when when Scott and I really we were just firing on all cylinders. Uh, at the beginning of season five, and listen, even even in um, five, no, six oh nine was the in, the invasion of Alexandria, which is another one of my favorite episodes, yes. um, which is basically the closest thing we've ever come to doing Night of the Living Dead. Um, that was another one of my favorite episodes because that was one of the few episodes where. We had zombies invading Alexandria at night with the wall when the walls were down. It was uh, I really loved just getting a real horror movie vibe out of The Walking Dead by shooting it at night. Awesome. I use that. I use that scene uh, when people ask me about CGI. I call attention to sometimes it's an economic decision. You mentioned you have to go fast. You know, imagine if we had to redo Joe Pilato's death in Day of the Dead. That would have taken eight hours, you know. Mm-hmm. But they just simply erase the tube and boom, you move on, you know. Yeah. Move. Well, listen, I mean, it, VFX is an amazing tool. I mean, I, I always use the analogy that when you're a director or a, you're a filmmaker, the your department head's job is to provide you with whatever tool that you need to make this beautiful painting. And, you know, VFX is the the palette and makeup effects is the brush and, and uh, stunts is the canvas and like they all have to work in harmony <laughs> to give you this beautiful painting and and I always feel like this look the best and that's when they work the best when when those departments all work in harmony you know to come up with uh, a, a specific visual aesthetic and you know we've been doing it for 10 years on Walking Dead and you know, the, the show was gorier, uh, probably gorier in its earlier days, because I think when we did the season four premiere, when they were in the big spot, I remember Sonequa Martin-Green stabs a zombie with a pool cue, and the pool cue went up through the chin and popped the eye out, and it was really gory. And uh, <laughs> I remember really loving that we would get a little crazier with with some of the, some of the gags, and, you know, that, that sort of goes in and out in terms of you know people's sort of taste for the amount of cg gore that we put in the show but you know certainly the the advancements in just the last 10 years in terms of crowd replication and and things like that just make something even of thought to do 10 years ago you know the, the crowds around around the hospital uh were they were so realistic looking that there were shots that I went, wait a minute, I know we didn't have that many zombies, 
but they literally just peppered them like at the top of the frame. You just, they just filled in areas and it looked amazing. Oh, right. Wish we could have done that on Dawn. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Tom, you did the makeup effects for the original Day of the Dead back in 1985, a, mo a movie which featured Greg Nicotero uh, as part of the cast. Did you personally do the makeup for Greg uh, in his death scene when, you know, he gets his throat uh, bit off by a zombie? Do you remember if that was, was you? It, did I, did I oh. do that? Callum's. No, no, no. Phil Callum's got bit in the throat. I got shot with a machine gun. Oh, right. that's right. I got you two mixed mix but up. I, but I did do Phil Callum, you know. Yes. But we did do Greg's severed head <laughs> lying on the table, you know. The uh, ending sequence. Tom yeah, Tom cast my head in his basement. It was like, you know, there's a really famous story about Day of the Dead. It was there were two versions of the movie that were going to get made. There was the nine million dollar version that we that Tom and I used to refer to as the Ten Commandments of zombie movies, and then there was the three million, which was going to be uh, they wanted it to be rated R, or there was the three million dollar unrated version, which was the scaled back version of Day of the Dead, and you know they had trouble raising the money to shoot a nine or seven million dollar unrated movie so george basically scaled everything back and that's the day of the dead that we that we have so when we started the movie there was still budget there was still some budget wars going back and forth so they were like well we got to start on something and there was a scene where a soldier's head comes out of a bag and it's still alive this was in the original draft of the script so tom was like, well, Greg, you can be that guy. And so they cast my head in his basement. And then we started building it. And then when George ended up cutting the script up, Tom was like, well, we have this head we're already making of Greg, so we should use it because we're already working on it. And then George wrote us wrote a part for me in the movie. Oh. So then that's how I became a character. was not because I'm a great actor, because I'm not. Oh, God. Um, it was because it was already a fake head of me being made. So they're like, well, we have this fake head of you. So we're going to back in this whole other character for you just so that we can have the gag of your head on the desk. Oh, and we could have we could have just stuck his head up through the table and put an appliance on to make his own head look a severed head. But it was so much better to be able to look under that table and see there was nothing there. And his head was really sitting there and moving and very much alive. And George went very slowly. We were doing it quick, making the eyes dart, you know. George made us do it very slowly. He thought that was better. Oh, it was brilliant. Now, Tom, when did you first meet George Romero, the grandfather of the modern-day zombie? I was a sophomore in high school, and he came there uh, to uh, cast a young kid for a movie that never got made. And he picked me out of the 500 students. And we did a, sc uh, a screen test, but like I said, the movie never got made. So years later, when he was gearing up to do Night of the Living Dead, I went down was office and he remembered me and I but I had a makeup portfolio followed him around the room and uh, he said well yeah we can use you on this gig but uh, I was in Vietnam when he made Night of the Living Dead but when I came back it was Martin and then uh, Dawn and you know the rest is history oh, uh, uh, Greg when did you first meet uh, George Romero I met well there's a unique history because my uncle uh, in Pittsburgh and knew George and my uncle played a part in the crazies 
And actually, in 19, I want to say 71, there was sort of like a really, uh, a really big article about George in Santa Fantastic magazine, and it was written by my uncle. So my uncle was like a DJ sort of actor, kind of, you know, I wanted to be part of the movie business. So when I met George, it was when our family was, was on, we had taken our first like European vacation and walked into a restaurant in Rome, Italy. And George was sitting there at dinner with his wife at the time, Christine. And I was like, that's like, wow. I think he was there meeting. I can never remember. I always try to like dig my dig back in my brain. I don't remember if he was there meeting with Dario about Dawn of the Dead. Dario Argento. Boom. Uh oh. Did I just lose you guys? Uh, you flashed off. Hold on. It came back earlier. We can hear you. We can hear you, but. Uh, but were you talking about Dario Argento, Greg? Yeah. There you go. There you go. We got you. Oh, just lost oh. you again. You're turning into a ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, we got Another you. We picture. got you. We got you. You're good. Are you talking about Dario Argento? Over here. Um, so I, that's, and you know, when I first started talking to George, I kind of said, hey, my uncle, you know, my uncle Sam. And, and you know, George was the kind of guy that would like, oh, when you're back to Pittsburgh, man, you should come over to the office and. So I took him up on it. I think I was 15 when I met George. And I would go visit down at uh, 247 uh, Fort Pitt Boulevard where his office was. And I met George before I met Tom. So wow. when Creepshow came along, he was like, hey, man, you know, we're shooting out in Monroeville and you should come visit and hang out. And, you know, they had offered me a PA job, but I was like, oh, I couldn't possibly. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go off to college in a year and be a doctor. But they're like, well, come visit. And that's where I met Tom. And and I, I probably like every Saturday for three months, I would drive out to Monroeville and just hang out when Tom was building Fluffy. Uh, and uh, and that's where Tom and I really became friends. And, and you know, sort of the rest is history, I guess. Didn't, didn't you tell me that you actually shot footage of the test that we were doing on Fluffy with the saliva and all that? You know, there's... Tom was, again, one of those people that he was such a, a technology buff and a technology bug. He always had a video camera around. He loved to document everything. I don't know if you got that from Dick Smith or what, but, like, it was just one of those things. Like, Tom always was recording stuff. So when I would come to visit, I remember you can hear my voice on one of the creep show making of Creepshow tapes. Uh, Tom was pumping saliva out of Fluffy's mouth. And I don't even think the skin was painted. I think he was just testing the slime or testing the drool tubes. And you can hear, I'm pumping it while he's filming it. And you can hear my face. And, uh, the beginning of your career. Yeah, here I am. And for our viewers. So kind of, then, of course, when I moved to L.A. and I always had my, my beta camera with me and I was filming everything and that's where all that footage from Evil Dead 2 came from. That's where all the footage from Army of Darkness came from. I was one of the people that had sort of adopted Tom's um, penchant for uh, for documenting uh, everything that we were doing. And 
you know, it, I, you think about it now and you think about the number of people that, who were inspired by the footage that they watched. You know, I mean, I remember working on the faculty with Robert Rodriguez and he was in L.A. one night. Uh, he was in L.A. when I came over and we were going like, to like paint monster models and eat pizza and just hang out. And and I said, oh, we should watch the making of Evil Dead 2. And he went, what? And I go, yeah, I have six hours of footage. Uh, we watched all six hours that wow. night. Like he just couldn't put it. And um, when you think about people now that are in the industry that were inspired, that bought the DVD and watched the special features and and it was the footage that I shot that that gave them uh, that much more of an insight into a, a, a really great time in our lives. And and you can't you can't you can't even put a price on yeah. on that experience. Like I, I, I used to bug Tom all the time and say, please tell me you have said a Dawn of the Dead. Like we would I would I would scour his negatives at his house and trying to find something dead that nobody had ever seen before yeah. because it just those movies that you love you're so connected to them and you just become ravenous about them and you want to know you want to experience everything that you can about them and a lot of people didn't nowadays you know everybody has their phones so they can shoot whatever they want um but back then you know it's very rare oh well now tony how do you, when was the time you, how, do you remember the first time you met Romero? Yes, it was before Dawn of the Dead came out. It was at a creation convention in 1977, I think. And Tom was there, George was there, and Richard Rubenstein. And they, they had a table in the dealer's room. And Rubenstein was standing in front of the table, and I, I went up to him and I said, uh, excuse me, could you tell me when Dawn of the Dead is finally coming out? And he says, well, why don't you ask the, dire the director? He's right there, George Romero. And there, there's this big bear of the man. And I like, I, I just flipped and uh, I got to meet him right then and there. I think it was uh, probably early 78. And it was a dream come true. You know, I was a big fan and I loved his, I enjoyed his uh, Q&A that, uh, that he did that at that time. And and then to get him at the, uh, the Weekend of Horrors convention and to deal with him on the magazine, there was no one nicer. Romero really was a, a saint of horror and, um, and a great guy and, and really missed. And yeah, that was the first time. I think that was the first show I met Tom too uh, as well. And um, yeah. Uh, Tony, but have I, you I, seen... Have you seen the Romero tattoo? Stay oh, uh, scared. Uh, what is that? Stay scared. <laughs> that's how yeah, he that's signed. A... That's how he signed his photos. There's yeah, three of us. Signed... Yep. That's he signed a flyer for me at that show, and it said "Stay scared." Yep. Oh, that was his. There's... That was his catchphrase. There's three of us. Tattoo. The same tattoo. Oh man. Wow. That's fun. Now, Greg, <laughs> uh, Beta's death for yeah. me was very multifaceted. You had Negan and Daryl teaming up to take him down. And then we got that flashback sequence right after Daryl stabs him uh, in both eyes. Were those flashback scenes for the viewers to see Beta's journey from the time he met Alpha? Or were they meant to represent what was going through Beta's mind as he is literally dying? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, you know. I mean, Beta... You know, Beta's clearly not the most sane person. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I directed the episode that was their sort of backstory where Alpha and Beta meet, which was episode two of season 10. I directed that episode as well. So I had a really great opportunity to work really closely with both Samantha and, and, you know, I think the challenge with episode 16 last night was the idea that he's like now hallucinating that the zombies are talking. Mm -hmm. That was really, and I remember thinking like, oh, you got to be really careful about that because we shot a couple takes when the walkers all turn to him and they say, we are the end of the world. Um, we did a couple takes where we had the zombies actually say it and their mouths moved. And then I was like, ah, I don't know if that really works. I don't know if I want to see their lips moving. It's enough that they all turn towards him uh, in unison like soldiers. But, you know, so much of it, even the walkers that walk past him and they whisper in his ear and stuff, you know, that that's all really intended to just say that, you know, that's where he belongs. And his mind is just telling him, um, all these different scenarios. So the moment when he gets stabbed and he kind of gets surrounded, you know, I think I think Angela actually was the one that found that that great piece of footage of him cradling Alpha's head that intercut perfectly with the walker that was that was sort of embracing him. So, you know, we really we really wanted to sort of make sure that there was some emotion behind it because Every character's death in Walking Dead has to have some emotion behind it. You know, Samantha's, you know, Alpha's death. Uh, I was really proud of that. You of should, that, you should be just the look, the pure betrayal on her eyes when Negan slits her throat. But then he lies her down so gently and cradles her while she's dying. It was really, um, it was a beautiful beautiful moment and i think every character's death on the show has has emotion attached to it otherwise it just wouldn't resonate you know i love beta's death i loved how it was pulled off after he pulls the knives out from both eyes for me the way he looked after he removed the knives flashed me back to the original halloween 2 after jamie lee curtis put two shots in each of Michael Myers's eyes. Is that an effect you were going for? Or did it just happen to work out that way? Well, you know, there's there's something very iconic about that. You know, we did the same thing on Johnny Depp in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, where, you know, when you have a character uh, that's, whose eyes are gone and the blood sort of trails out, it has a very, it has a very iconic look. And I think with Ryan, you know, we had prosthetic pieces with blood tubes um, that we attached inside that mask that he was wearing so we could just put it on because, you know, we shot the episode in nine days, so we didn't have a lot of time to, to go back and forth. But I honestly, I remember we had shot the scene where Beta gets pulled down into the crowd and then Ryan was supposed to fly out the next day. And we were shooting the last day. It was the day that when the whispers attacked the wagon. And I went to the, my producer and I just said, I feel like I want one more take of Ryan surrounded by the whisper, the walkers and being pulled into the crowd because the sun was coming up. We were rushing. It was all this. And Ryan was supposed to fly out. And I kind of called him and said, dude, are you, are you game for another take? And 
he was grateful that I gave a shit enough to really want to do another take and take another stab at it to make sure that we got the emotion 100% correct. And, um, and that was where some of that look came from was that, was that sort of, we just did an additional take the next night. And I really wanted to make sure that I had that moment. Well, we thank you for that because that moment is just, it's, it's, it's what, it's like the cherry on top of the scene for me. Now, Tom, was it George Romero who asked you to direct the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead? Yes. Uh, how did that come to be? He just, you know, had nobody else in mind. He's like, Tom, I want you to do it. Well, um, I had directed three episodes of his Tales from the Dark Side. Excellent series, by and, the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's 74 episodes. Ten of them are are good you know i did three of uh, they had they had feature length scripts written uh, of my episodes two of my episodes so he george really liked that stuff and you know i was surprised he said hey we have another gig uh, i got financing to do a remake of night of the living dead and i thought i would be making zombies again he said no no i want you to direct it and that's how that happened wow now was the remake your own vision a unique vision of night of the living dead or did you find yourself going to George and asking him for his input on how certain scenes should be played out? Well, both, both, because George wrote the original screenplay. But I did go to him and I said, you know, why can't Barbara come back and help these people? You know, Johnny drags her out, but we never see her killed. You know, and I had just seen Alien, so... A female hero like Sigourney Weaver in Alien really appealed to me, and I wanted Barbara. I mean, in the original movie, she's a brain-dead pinhead, you know, and I love Judy O'Day, you know. Judy and O'Day, Judy O'Day and I did, I was 14, we did the Red Shoes Ballet in Philadelphia at the Academy of Music. Judy O'Day and I go way back. Anyway, she was a brain-dead twit in that original movie, and I did. I wanted her to be a hero. So I said that to George, and he wrote that ending that you see mm -hmm. in the uh, in the final movie, which is a bit now for the audience. You know, I cast everybody to look like the original actors, except Barbara, because I knew I was going to take her in a different direction. And uh, George said, this is almost a frame-by-frame -frame remake, and it essentially is, you know, except it's in color, until about that point, you know, when Barbara becomes the hero. Exactly. Now, Tony, yeah. Fangoria Magazine played a big role uh, back in the day promoting and reviewing these horror movies. Can you take us a little bit behind the scenes in the Fangoria offices? What was going on? How were you guys being aware of these new movies? What kind of access were you being given to and all that? Well, when it came to George's films, we were pretty much given um, you know, the, the key to the city. We got everything we wanted. We, and his movies, when we put George's zombies on the covers of Bangori, they always sold the best. And, and George always gave us uh, access to his sets, great interview time. Um, you know, the uh, one of the original editors of Fangoria, Bob Martin, even played a zombie in Day of the Dead. Um, and, uh, you know, George, uh, you know, knew the value of, of Fangoria and, and, you know, what it meant to be on the cover and... You know, he always appreciated that, and, and we always appreciated mm -hmm. the support he gave us. And, it, you know, it was uh, 
one hand wash it wash the other and um and it's yeah it, you know it, we always stro- strove to find the perfect zombie shot to put on the cover of fangoria uh, that was always that was always fun um, hey, the- you know go on tom oh. are these are these questions that people are typing in here? Uh, no, these are, uh, we have asked fans for their question. They've sent them in and we've combined them all into what we're being asked. And actually, honestly, I just love hearing you guys talk amongst each other because I think that's just freaking fascinating. Well, we do it. We do it so rarely. <laughs> There's a zombie puppet on the floor in my, in my room. Oh, check that, that out. A zombie puppet. Oh my God. Oh, there are you we go. gonna show? Are we gonna show zombies here? Here's the zombie COVID nineteen safety mask <laughs> <laughs> that my company is producing. Okay. Oh God. Here's this. Here's the skull. <laughs> here's the. Here's the. You know what? Oh, geez. And here's. Uh, here's. Uh, here's the hockey. Oh man, God! You guys just have like the greatest stuff. Now, Greg, I really oh, you should see Greg's house. You should see his house. You know, when Greg and I were were young, were starting out, it was like a race to see who could, uh, you know, have the most toys. Greg is winning, believe me. <laughs> He's got a full size zombie puppet laying right there in the middle of his floor. Oh, you should you should see the rest of the place. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And that's just in Atlanta. Uh, His house in L.A. is a museum of famous monsters and collections. You know? uh, Greg, are you originally my, my from mom. Pennsylvania as well? Yeah. I'm from Pittsburgh, yeah. yeah. I grew up about 30 minutes from Tom. And, you know, that's the, that was the crazy thing. Like, when I... The idea, and I know Tom talks about this a lot, and George talked about it a lot, too, which is you didn't have to be in... Hollywood or New York to to make movies and George like Toby Hooper and you know like George made movies where he lived and it just so happened that George that the guy who I was uh, you know sort of the most intrigued by uh, lived 40 minutes for me and not only that but was a nice enough person that he would open his office to you and he would invite you to come visit the set and like before I knew it I was part of the family and you know for me I think the craziest thing is being on the set of Day of the Dead and knowing that 90% of the people that worked on Day of the Dead all worked on Dawn of the Dead which kind of blew me away because I Dawn of the Dead still Dawn of the Dead and Jaws kind of fight neck and neck you know for my favorite movie um but, you know, I would literally go around and listen to them talking about Dawn of the Dead and the stories, the, everything that would happened. And, you know, I just wished I had been there. And I felt, you know, like, they, you know, they do those zombie walks uh, all the time. And probably, I don't know, God, it must have been 12, 15 years ago, they did a zombie walk at the Monroeville Mall. And at that point, it was like the biggest zombie walk they had ever done. And. I was in Pittsburgh for a convention as a guest and I went to the zombie walk and it was like at, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, walking through the mall with all these people made up as zombies. And I really kind of started getting a little like misty eyed about it. I'm like, this is what it must have been like. And I remember calling Tom. I'm like, why the fuck aren't you here? There's zombies everywhere. He's like, 
If we get, for our viewers who don't know, Monroeville Mall in Pittsburgh is where Dawn of the Dead was shot. So, you know, if you guys are anyone outside of Pittsburgh, if you ever find yourself in Pittsburgh, Monroeville Mall, that's where the Dawn of the Dead was shot. Now, Greg, I really thought that we were going to lose Gabriel and Ezekiel in this finale. I would have bet money on it. Did you guys toy around with that idea for either character? but in the end decided that there is still more to tell in their, in their character arcs. Well, listen, I mean, Gabriel has a great episode. I mean, he's, you know, Seth does, he's, they're, listen, they're both amazing actors. I mean, I don't know why you would ever want to take them off the show, but <clears throat> with, uh, with Seth in particular, because he really has that heroic moment where he stays behind when everybody else is escaping to fight the whispers and Seth and I had a blast shooting that. We had a really good time and I, I really was super proud of him. Um, you know, with, with what he, with what he brings to the show and what he brought that particular episode. So, you know, with Kari, you know, Kari was, Kari didn't have as much to do honestly in this episode because his, his real focus was sort of, you know, keeping Eugene's, uh, motivation journey yeah track but you know again he was there he was there to bring up Eugene when you know when he faltered gotcha now when the walkers are falling off the cliff and Lydia throws Alpha's mask over uh, the cinematography mm -hmm. was spectacular in that scene first off uh, whose Thank idea <laughs> whose idea was it for Lydia to throw it over the cliff to symbolically show us that the Whisperer War is done, it's over, it's in the past? Uh, I believe that was my idea because, again, when you're, when you're at the point where you're blocking these scenes and you're shooting all this stuff, you know, I just remember seeing her there holding it. And, you know, I mean, because I have a great relationship with Angela and with the writers and I had sort of pitched the idea, like, well, what do you think if she throws it over? Um, but, you know, that sequence was really challenging because we never went to a real cliff. I mean, they built, mm -hmm. we built like a 20 foot cliff facade with a bunch of stunt pads underneath it. And then we, um, and then we just sort of had the stunt people have a, a certain number of stunt people fall at one time so all the walkers that were behind them that weren't stunt people couldn't get within 10 feet of the cliff wall so we had to position our camera that you didn't notice that people weren't walking behind them and I think we shot that scene in like half a day and then we did one day of pickups because we changed some dialogue with between that's okay. We changed some dialogue between Lydia and Carol, so we did a couple pickups. Uh, but you know, I mean, that's a huge triumph for the visual effects team for Eric, Aaron McLean. I didn't say Eric. I'm just really tired. Aaron McLean and the vi visual effects team because so many of those shots that we designed and you know I storyboarded the whole sequence um, were gonna live or die based on you know, how real it looked and Walker sort of dropping off the edge of the cliff. So, 
it was really it was really kind of a beautiful sequence. And that shot, you know, Steve Campbell was our cinematographer on The Walking Dead, and that, he shot that episode and did a great job. He did. He did. Uh, Tom. Uh, we're running almost out of time. Uh, we still got about eight minutes left. Friday the 13th, without a doubt, one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, you were the first person to put a face on Jason Voorhees with that iconic ending of Jason jumping out of the, coming out of the lake and pulling Alice to the bottom. Describe your experience working on that set as well as working with uh, Sean Cunningham. Um, well, um mostly it was fun because we didn't stay in the hotel with the actors or the crew. We stayed at the camp in like one of those cabins, you know, Yeah. we were out, th we were out there in the, in the woods uh, all the time, mainly because we were close to bake the foam rubber that we were going to, you know, uh, create the heads from, you know, but uh, it was great fun. And Sean was very receptive. It was my idea for him to come out of the, the lake at the end. Ah. Cause I had just seen Carrie uh, and then Carrie uh the music is playing like the credits are gonna roll any second and that fucking hand comes out of the grave and scares the shit out of us i said let's have jason come out and do the same thing you know and he was saying yeah but jason's dead as well you know uh, make it a dream and and it worked and it scared the hell out of people but uh 13. Was... say say it again that 13 movies later he's still around yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I have a big argument with Betsy Palmer about uh, when she was alive, about Jason being alive. She says we never found the body. Well, that means that this kid came out of the lake and was disoriented and what he was living off crayfish for 35 years and nobody <laughs> saw him, you know. So uh, I turned down part two because Jason was running around. They said, no, 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 we're going to change that. And they didn't. I didn't get offered part three, but then they brought me in for, part four. for what was supposed to be the final chapter. Oh yeah, it's called the final chapter. Yeah, yeah. And I got to kill. I got to kill. You know, Jason. Uh, but he, like Greg said, he's he's still around. You know, <laughs> still around. Still, he even went to space. Um, oh, that was ridiculous. Yeah, you know, that was. Yeah, uh, yeah. I stopped watching him after part five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not... Part five, the fucking ashtray was Jason. His spirit <laughs> kept invading things. You know. Tom, very blunt question. We talked. We touched on this earlier. What is your real? I mean, honestly, you CGI, modern CGI, taking over the craft that you have mastered. <clears throat> uh, what is your true feeling? I don't feeling? think it's. I don't think it's taken over. I think the best effects, and maybe Greg will agree, is a combination of the practical stuff and the CGI. I wish I had CGI back when I was trying to solve a problem or hide an edge or something. But I love it when it's done well, and you know, and, and Greg will tell you some of the stuff they're doing isn't possible with these zombies unless they put green pants on somebody and use uh, CGI. The the best there's a collective dislike of CGI, but really the best effects are a combination of both. Uh, when the evil, the new Evil Dead movie came out, they were bragging that there was no CGI in it. You know, J.J. Abrams was talking about. Uh, using a lot of practical effects, which he did in in Star Star Wars, but I I love it when it's done well. That's okay. That's that makes perfect sense, and I I, I love to hear that. Uh, I was kind of thinking maybe you're like you frowned upon it because it might like you know you see it as a way as it sort of ruining the art. No, but it's also an economic decision, you know. So well, uh, if you can afford it, you know. I mean, there are still a lot of movies that can't afford it and. 
they're not using it, but sometimes it's economic. Okay. The truth of the matter, Tom is probably the biggest movie fan I know. <laughs> like every movie that comes out, he's the first guy in the theater. <clears throat> all about it's all about entertaining and and in like I said earlier, you know, using the right tool for the right job. And there are times when visual effects is the right tool, and there are times yeah. when makeup effects right tool and whatever but ultimately you have to serve the greater master which is the story uh, itself and that's you know that's where a lot of times things get a little muddled and a little confused when you know and it's happened in makeup you know when makeup effects takes over a movie and doesn't allow the story to service you know to be serviced and visual effects it's the same way and this could be the same way of stunts it could be the same with costumes it could be the same way with anything art department you know it's you know like i said everybody has to work hand in hand and you know i i i love the fact that tom still go to see every movie that comes out because they'll call me and ask like how do you have time to to see anything i i've you know i don't have time to be shit anymore (laughs) i catch up like years later see something but you know you see movies and it does remind you uh, why you do it and why you love it and why you get pulled. You know, the interesting thing about the pandemic down here in Georgia was when they opened movie theaters to very limited capacity, there were no movies to project because nobody was releasing anything. So all of a sudden you could go to the theater and see Jaws and Jurassic Park and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we went, I took my, family and we went to see all those movies and it reminded me of that excitement of going to the movies the weekend that those films opened and seeing them projected and the saddest thing about all of it is is that even now more than ever that that communal experience of going to the theater and screaming together or laughing experiencing with a a group of people that's that's sad. Well, 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 guys, we're almost out of time. Uh, I want to put this in, guys. Uh, Tom, both Tom and Greg, are scheduled to be guests in uh, Tony's revival of Weekend of Horrors in Edison, New Jersey, between June 11th and June 13th, as well as a whole bunch of the Walking Dead cast members and other uh, horror figures as well. Uh, the uh, website information is right there under Tony's picture. Uh, you can go to that. You put that URL in. You can see all the, the entire guest list. You can inquire about tickets. Uh, so, Tony, a few questions. Uh, what's the status of the convention? Is it still on track? Yes, yeah, so far Before so good. I get on, guys, because I got to get up really early. All right, Greg, thank you so much for being with us. It's been an honor. Uh, and take care. Tony, I'll see you soon. Thanks. Yeah, I can't wait, Greg. All right, Greg, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Greg. All right, guys. guys. We're saying goodbye to to Greg Nicotero. We want to thank him so much uh, for joining us tonight. So, uh, you know, tell us about the status of the convention, Tony. So far, so good. You know, uh, we don't know where things are going to be with COVID, of course, and we already canceled our um, first show, uh, the first first rebirth show that was supposed to be uh, this month. 
but I think we're confident that this horrible uh, pandemic will be behind us by June and everything will go on as planned. That's 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 great. And I do I do want to show our guests, uh, our viewers, some of the, the, the guest list. Clive Barker, Norman Reedus is going to be there, David Harbour, Tom Savini, uh, Chandler Riggs, who we all know as Carl, Lydia, who is played by Cassidy McClincy. There's more, Cooper Andrews, Jerry, Pollyanna McIntosh, Caitlin Nacone, Tom Payne, who played Jesus, Kaylee Fleming, Judith, the director of the original Friday the 13th. Uh, Sean Cunningham, and of course, the man himself, Greg Nicotero, Yay. is going to be there as well. That is between June 11th to June 13th uh, in, in Edison, New Jersey. Go to that website, uh, horror.deadtalklive.com. It will take you straight to Creative Entertainment's website, where you guys can yeah, get all the information, tickets, everything. Anthony, thank you so much. Tom, I think... Thank you. No problem, Tony. Tom, are you still there? I think you might have gone on a potty break. <laughs> That's fine. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I want to thank again... Yay. I want to thank again Greg Nicotero, Tom Savini, and Anthony Timpone for joining me tonight. I'll be back on the air, guys, tomorrow night with the star of The Walking Dead World Beyond, Aliyah Royale. So you guys want to definitely tune in for that one. And until tomorrow night, guys, remember to stay walking. Good night.